As you turn to Genesis 50 in your Bibles, I promise, as weird as you might think this is for a Sunday morning, it's even weirder for me to teach. It's 9 o'clock in our house this morning. I'm trying to do this and not be discovered by little kids wandering around the house. At any moment, they could bust in and, and we'll just have to see how good my editing skills are. Uh, in some ways, I feel like I'm in a quiet place. Just can't be that quiet. Um, you can also adjust this and have me talk twice as fast and get this over with in half the time. Or you can uh, change the speed to half speed and, and I'll sound extremely drunk. Uh, one of the favorite things me and my big like to do when we listen to a podcast. But, but anyway, let me pray and, and jump into the text. Father, I do thank you for the opportunity to teach uh, your people to stay connected as a church uh, in the midst of this crazy circumstances. I pray not only for us this morning, but for churches gathering around uh, our area, our nation, and around the world like this for the foreseeable future, that uh, the power of your word, the, uh, the beauty of the body of Christ, what you want to accomplish in and through your people, um, won't just not be hindered during this season, but will actually flourish. And we'll see you accomplish things in and through your people that will blow our minds. That you are not confined to our traditions. You're not confined to our buildings. You will be unleashed as we live out the reality of who we are as your people. And so even take this time this morning together in your word, um, connected in strange ways to grow our faith, to grow our affection, to grow our love for you. Uh, Father, bless this. Bless this being done by so many brothers and sisters around uh, the world today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We are journeying through God's redemptive story uh, throughout the entire story of the Bible as we read through the Bible this year as a church. Uh, it might seem more appropriate to take this teaching time today to directly address the coronavirus pandemic from the pages of Scripture, but if you remember when we began this series, we talked about one of the motivations for the series was to spend this year deeply, even more so, deeply grounding ourselves in the story of the Bible. As we examine this one story that ties together all the stories, the redemption story of God on Sundays, and as we walk through the Bible as individuals daily, we're deeply grounding ourselves even more in the Word of God because we felt like in 2020 we're going to be bombarded with messages that make it seem as though, um, for instance, the future of humanity will rest in who gets elected in various offices in 2020. Rather than realizing the future of humanity has more to do with who God is as revealed in the scriptures and through his son Jesus. Uh, in a year when we're tempted to fear or fight because of political tensions in our nation, ever more we need to be a people of the book. Um, every year our culture rises and falls based on what's trending on social media. Stock markets literally changing after press conferences. Our world is incredibly unstable, but God isn't. His word isn't. And so even more now through a global pandemic, a national emergency, where life as normal as we know it comes to a grinding halt, we need a perspective that is greater and higher and bigger and more true than anything else we'll read or watch. We need uh, the perspective of the one who knew from the first star that he was made and named that in 2020 there would be a COVID-19 pandemic. And he's not stressed, and he's not pressed, and he's not put out. He's got this too. 
along with the seven billion people and the, even the hairs on their head numbered or the health of their bodies. And I also didn't want to do a special sermon related to the pandemic because I, I wanted us to see that this book is alive. And any day you open it to feast, God has a word for that day, no matter where you are. If you come daily with that expectation, that desire, and seek to, for Him to feed your soul, you will feast, church. And it will be delightful and bring joy to your soul. So we saw last week God moving from working through all of humanity in the first 11 chapters of Genesis to working with one man who would become one family and eventually one nation through whom the Messiah would one day come and all peoples on the earth would be blessed. And today we're going to walk through the rest of Genesis, skimming stories by drawing our attention to three recurring truths, the relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility, the presence of the Lord with his people, and seeing God move the redemption story forward often in unexpected ways. So first, the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. We don't have to get far into the Bible to see this harmonious tension emerge. And I, I use that word harmonious on purpose, a harmony consisting of different voices working together in unison, uh, uh, unity to make beautiful music, which is a more accurate description of these two realities that we often want to embrace. Like we often try to solve the riddle of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and even create complex theological solutions to resolve these differences. differences. But why? They are both true. They, they both exist in tension. Man's responsibility cannot be ignored. We're, we're not robots pre-programmed to act. We make real choices for which we are responsible and will be held accountable. And God's sovereign will won't be thwarted because God is God. He, he can somehow in a divine and mysterious way work through the willful choices of billions of people to accomplish his ultimate purposes. Paul beautifully summed this up in Ephesians 1, verses 11 and 12. In him, we also have received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything, works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will, so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. Joseph put it like this in Genesis 50, verses 19 and 20. Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good, to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. What did they plan for evil? Well, you have to go back to the beginning of Joseph's life. He was the youngest of uh, youngest two of twelve sons, born the, to the favorite wife of two wives uh, of Jacob. He favored Rachel. If you go back to Genesis 29, you can read that story. Basically favoring Rachel because he found her more attractive than her sister Leah. Uh, but Rachel could not conceive for a long time. Leah kept having sons along with her handmaiden. And then Rachel's handmaiden, handmaiden was given. And, and she became pregnant with more of Jacob's sons. But eventually when Rachel conceived, she had Joseph and then had Benjamin. And then died in the childbirth of Benjamin. And so these two boys grew up as the apple of Jacob's eye. Highly favored by their dad. You fast forward to his teen years in Genesis 37, Joseph had a dream, has a dream about his father and brothers essentially bowing down to him in some manner. He tells this to them, um, and they mock him. He has another dream where he's in this position of authority over his father and brothers. 
Well, this only provoked more jealousy and hatred for Joseph from his brothers. The brothers were out tending the sheep, and Jacob sends the favored son to check on them. And they see him from a distance wearing the technicolor dream coat Jacob had given him because he was the favored one. And as he starts approaching, they start plotting. Let's kill him, one of the brothers say. Well, let's not kill him, another one says. Let's throw him into a pit, thinking, Reuben thinking he can come back and save him later. But then some traders come by on a caravan, and the brothers took him out of the pit and sold him into slavery, and then went home and told Jacob, his dad, that he was dead. Well, you fast forward some more years, and in Genesis 39, jo Joseph is serving in the house of Potiphar, officer of Pharaoh, leader of Egypt, captain of the guards, and Potiphar's wife desperately wants to have sex with Joseph. Joseph is the most valuable servant of Potiphar. He trusts him with everything, and he, and he won't touch her because he wants to honorably serve his master. So she waits until her husband's out of town, tries to seduce Joseph, and Joseph refuses, literally running away from her, and she screams basically rape, and Joseph ends up in prison. In prison, he again proves himself as a responsible, reliable worker. He's given responsibility. He's given trust by leadership. He interprets two dreams of two prisoners, both of which come true. One prisoner, the cupbearer of Pharaoh, had a dream, and Joseph revealed that he would soon be restored to his position, and he was. The chief baker had a dream, and the interpretation was that soon you would be executed, and he was. The cupbearer said that he wouldn't forget what Joseph had done for him, but he did. Two years, yes, two years later, two more years of prison life, and Pharaoh has some dreams that no one can interpret, and voila, the cupbearer remembers this guy that he met in the clank who could figure out dreams. And Joseph is summoned, he interprets Pharaoh's dreams, essentially, the dream said that Egypt was about to have seven years of abundance, followed by seven years of famine, and they needed, therefore, to, to plan to store up food during the years of abundance so that during the famine they could survive. Make preparations now because something you know is coming that doesn't seem real yet. Hmm, that sounds familiar. Pharaoh was so impressed with his wisdom, he puts him in charge of everything under his rule in his kingdom. And it all worked out exactly like God had revealed in those dreams. And during the seven years of famine, not only did Egypt have enough grain for their people, but they had enough for people from surrounding lands to come, including a large family of shepherds from Canaan, Jacob and his 11 sons and their families. Now, we don't have time to go through the reunion of Joseph and his brothers and later reuniting with his father, Jacob. Beautiful, amazing stories. But at this point in Genesis 50, Jacob has died and his brothers think, okay, now that's it. Our little runt brother we hated is now second in command in Egypt. Dad is dead, and now we're dead. And the wisdom of God continues to flow from Joseph's mouth. Genesis 50, verse 18. His brothers also came to him and bowed down before him and said, We are your slaves, fulfilling the dream that Jacob had when he was a young teenager. Verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. He extended grace to them, not because he had received love and grace from them, but because that he had received love and grace from God. There were thousands of willful choices made by humans that brought Joseph from the somewhat bratty dreamer as a teen to slavery, Potiphar, eventually Pharaoh's palace. Some of those decisions made by willful humans were for his harm and not for his good. 
But Joseph, at this point in his life, sees them all through the kind lens of God's providence. Through it all, God was at work. Even saying, am I in the place of God? God was always at work, ultimately accomplishing his purpose to help Joseph's family survive the famine. And from our perspective, keep the line alive that leads from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Judah, not Joseph, and eventually to Christ. While man's responsibility to make decisions cannot be ignored, God's sovereign will will not be thwarted. This virus in our world today isn't not sovereign. Man is not sovereign over this virus. God alone is sovereign. God alone has a will and a purpose that cannot be thwarted. We can do what we can, but ultimately we trust God. We trust his good and perfect will because he's a good and perfect God, which doesn't lead to apathy or laziness. Well, I'm not going to do anything different. I'm just going to trust God. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Like that might have been the mentality of patient 31 in South Korea. I was reading last night. They had kept the virus pretty much quarantined through the first 30 patients until patient 31. He gets loose and 80% of the cases in South Korea came from this one guy. God's sovereignty doesn't make our choices unimportant. They are so important, in fact, we will one day be held accountable for them. But while our choices are important, our choices are not ultimate. And that's a relief because the one who ultimately is going to accomplish his purpose and will is good and he's working for our good. The ultimate expression of this, of course, we find in Christ. Uh, millions of individual choices were made by willful people so that when the fullness of time had come, Christ came. And several times in his ministry, you see Jesus being attacked by religious leaders, the crowd even at times picking up stones and, and ready to throw him off a cliff, and Jesus slipping away because it was not the right time. The end of all this summarized by Peter in his sermon in Acts 2, verses 22 and 23. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. These lawless people made the decision to kill an innocent man, for which they will be held accountable by God. But it did not thwart God's determined plan, but ultimately accomplished it. We see this theme throughout the Bible. It will come up time and again. And we can trust this is even working out in our lives today. As we see Paul write in Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. The only purpose that we know for sure God is always working out in all things, including the coronavirus, in our lives, is to conform us to the image of his Son. But we can have full confidence that not only is God doing that, he has the power to do it, and it flows from his goodness. It's for our good. Why do we have that confidence? Because... God is the ultimate power, sovereign over all creation, and he is with us. He is with his people, which is the second thing that stands out not only in Joseph's, Joseph's life, but through the rest of the account of Genesis from Abraham on. So see, secondly, see the presence of God with his people. We spent time uh, last week examining how the Lord made a shift 
in his redemptive plan from no longer working through all of humanity, as he had in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, to focusing his redemptive plan on one man, one family, who would become one nation. And in Genesis 12, the Lord called and made a, a promise to Abram, later called Abraham, of course. Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abraham, uh, Abram, go out from your land, your relatives, your father's house, to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The promise of land, descendants, and blessing through this covenantal promise was spoken again to Abram in Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 22. Well, in Genesis 25, Abraham dies with just one descendant realized, Isaac. Isaac will carry on the promise. Well, Isaac has twin boys, and then in Genesis 26, the Lord comes to Isaac and reaffirms the same promise he made uh, to Abraham. He reaffirms it to Isaac. Genesis 26, verses 3 and 4. For I will give you these lands, give you all these lands to you and your offspring, and I will confirm the oath that I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky. I will give you your offspring all these lands and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring. So I will give you land, I will give you descendants, and I will give, make you a blessing to all the earth. Isaac, like his dad, lied about his relationship with his wife to a local ruler and almost got her taken away to be the, the wife of another man. And God has to show up to intervene, to protect the descendants of the seed of the woman who would one day crush the head of the serpent. And God does that. He shows up to protect him. Does Isaac's sin and foolishness do the threats of local skirmishes thwart God's promise to him? No, God is still with Isaac. He appears to him again at the end of the chapter, reaffirming his covenantal promise in verse 24. And the Lord appeared to him that night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your offspring because of my servant Abraham. Now, Isaac will eventually die and, uh, and now through whom will the promise continue? Esau would be the natural choice, but God chose to carry along the covenantal and redemptive story through the younger son, Jacob, turning the human traditions of giving all the inheritance to the firstborn on its head. It's God's way of working and assessing uh, not being the same as our human traditions. But Jacob is even more of a deceiver than Abraham or Isaac. I mean, honestly, if you study Jacob's life, the track record in his life is so poor. If he wasn't mentioned in Hebrews 11... Uh, this line of, of, of people who were uh, a people of God exhibiting faith in God, if he wasn't mentioned in Hebrews 11, you might question if he even was a believer. He just seems like a con man over and over again. But part of the beauty of the Bible is that our heroes of faith and spiritual ancestors aren't whitewashed for us. We see all their flaws because the redemption story of God isn't dependent on perfect sinless people but on a powerful, sovereign God who, as we saw in Abraham, promised to keep his covenant himself. Not because we would always perfectly uphold our end of the covenant, but because he would always, always uphold his end of the covenant. So, would God be with Jacob, the deceiver? Would God reaffirm his covenantal promise to him? Well, of course. In Genesis 28, God appears to Jacob in a dream, this famous stairway of heaven dream, and he says in verse 13, the Lord was standing there beside him saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your offspring the land on which you are lying. 
Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out toward the west, the east, the north, and the south. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Look, I am with you, and I will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So Jacob goes on through life, has these 12 sons. Which one of the sons would be the line that would lead to the Messiah? And then what does that mean for the other sons? Would they be left out like Esau? Well, we find out from Jacob's blessings over his sons before his death that it would be through the line of Judah that the seed of the woman would one day come. When Jacob says in Genesis 49.10, the scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until... He whose right it is comes, and the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. The right to rule, as pictured in the scepter and staff, remains with Judah until he whose right it is comes, and to whom the obedience of the peoples belong to him. One of the clearest messianic prophecies and promises in the book of Genesis. But that does not mean the other 11 sons are left out of sharing in the covenantal blessings. And we see this unfold, of course, as time progresses, but from the life of Joseph. Joseph would be used by God to protect the 12 sons of Jacob, keep them alive during the famine, uh, give them land to live on in Goshen, this land right next to Egypt during the famine for them to tend their sheep and grow as a family. And by the time of Exodus, it would become a group of people numbered as 600,000 men, plus women and children, easily over a million people. The Lord was with them to bless them, prosper them, and grow them. And the Lord was with Joseph as he was working in and through Joseph to get him to the place where God could use him, not only to protect and bless the people of Egypt, but other surrounding nations during the famine. For instance, we read in Genesis 39, verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, serving in the household of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made everything he did successful, he gave him more responsibility. He's a falsely excused by Potiphar's wife. He's thrown into prison. We read in uh, verse 21 of, 30, of chapter 39, but the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. He granted him favor with the prison warden. Verse 23, the warden did not bother with anything under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him, and the Lord made everything he did successful. Even when Joseph was forgotten by the cupbearer and left in prison for two more years, an innocent man, God, was with him, and Joseph knew it. As soon as he was brought out to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, his words give testimony to that reality. Genesis 41, verse 15, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Joseph, I have had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said about you that you can hear a dream and interpret it. In verse 16, I am not able to, Joseph answered Pharaoh. It is God who will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Joseph knew, despite the injustice he had experienced at the hands of his brother, at the hands of Potiphar's wife, at the hands of the cupbearer who forgot all about him for two years in prison, he knew all along the Lord was with him. The Lord was helping him remain faithful and fruitful. He was in the place of God, even when it didn't feel like God might have been with him. This is even more our reality today, church. The Lord is with us. Jesus says he must go away so the helper would come. And this helper, the Holy Spirit, who dwells inside of us, makes true Jesus' statement. 
uh, in the Great Commission, Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. It makes true the promise of Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love we have in Christ Jesus. It makes true the promise that he will never leave us nor forsake us. It makes true the promise that he who began a good work in you will complete it. We may be forsaken by men. We may suffer the, at the hands of injustice of sinful humanity. We may feel abandoned by those who are supposed to love and help us. But the Lord is always with us. Even as we practice this form of social distancing for the sake of others, especially the elderly, the Lord is with us. We're never really alone. One word spoken in our minds and hearts is heard by our Father in heaven. And when we don't have the words, we even have the promise of the Spirit to intercede for us and pray for us. We are never alone. We are never alone. The God who was with Joseph is the same God who is always with us to comfort us, to help us, to encourage, to literally put courage inside of us, to calm our fears, to quiet our anxieties, to embolden our faith, to give us joy and hope, peace and love, to send us out on mission. Every single thing God has promised to us will come true because God is with us. Every single thing we need, He will provide because God is with us. Every single thing He calls us to do, every command to obey, every weakness and hurt to overcome, we can because the Lord is with us. Our failure to see that doesn't mean it's not true. It's our failure to see it. And so much of the Christian life is simply us trying to behold. Behold. See. See. See these things, brothers and sisters. See these truths. See these realities. This is why we go to the Word daily. This is why we sing the songs that we sing weekly. This is why we gather with the people of God regularly, because we need other people to help us to see. We need the Word to help us to see. We need songs to help us to see, because we're so good at, at missing it and not seeing. See, His presence is always with us. The Lord is with us. We are never, ever alone. And then thirdly, we've seen God's sovereignty and man's responsibility play out in the rest of Genesis. We've seen the presence of the Lord with his people. Lastly, God moves his redemption story forward, often in unusual ways. We've already seen these unusual ways, God choosing a couple who were, was infertile to make uh, a promise to of numerous descendants. God choosing the younger Jacob and not the older Esau. God choosing one of the youngest sons, Joseph, to become great. From falsely accused in prison to being second in command in Egypt, this is not typically how things work out. It's clear from the first book of the Bible, God's not working out his redemption plan according to script, or at least not how we might, uh, according to the customs of humanity. Often this redemption story takes unexpected turns and twists. And maybe one of the strangest stories to show this in is Genesis 38, Judah and Tamar. If you haven't read through that yet on your journey through the Word, uh, go check it out, maybe read it again. Uh, probably uh, the first time you read it, <laughs> your mind was a little blown. What is going on here? Judah's son Ur is married to Tamar, and, and the only thing we know about him is he's wicked and God kills him. Judah tells his brother Onan to marry Tamar and have offspring through her, so Ur will have some descendants, I know, 
It's incredibly weird, but very common custom in ancient times that we'll dig more into when we get to Ruth. But Onan refuses to carry out this common obligation, and God kills him. So Tamar is this young widow. Uh, Judah has another son who hasn't grown up yet. He says, look, go and stay as a widow for a while, and, and this other son will grow up, and he'll marry you one day. But Judah didn't really want to do that because everyone that she's married to dies, so he just kind of forgets about her. Well, one day, years later, Judah's wife dies. He ends up in the same town as Tamar and purchases a prostitute for the night, only it's Tamar, dressed up and in disguise. He ends up impregnating his own daughter-in-law, but she is slick. She keeps some of his personal items for payment or the promise of a payment to come later. A few months pass, and Tamar obviously shows up pregnant. Judah is furious. Bring her out. Let's kill her now. And she walks out and sends Judah's personal items back to him, and says, the person who owns these items is the father of my child. Can you imagine the drama? I'm convinced all great storytellers have been influenced by the Bible in some way or another. It's incredible. Judah rightfully is ashamed. The end result are these twins, Perez and Zerah. And as we read in Matthew 1, the genealogy of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God in the flesh... Matthew 1, verses 2 and 3, Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers, Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. The redemption story, the seed of the woman, would pass through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and yes, Perez fathered with Tamar, his own daughter-in-law. This would not be the last time God's redemptive plan takes a very unusual turn and includes stories with sordid, troubling details, which gives us hope because God is at work even in the worst situation of our lives. Uh, by the way, I forgot to mention Tamar wasn't even among the people Judah was supposed to marry. She was a Canaanite, Canaanite descent. There's earlier stories in Genesis of Isaac and Jacob going to great trouble to find wives from the right families uh, and not from the wrong families. Well, Judah didn't do that. So Tamar is from the wrong side of the tracks and ends up in the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Often, God works in unexpected ways that we can't predict or foresee. Not only, I mean, it's not always. And so our, our rule of life shouldn't be, well, let's just find the craziest situation possible because that's where God must be. We shouldn't see life like that. But also don't be surprised when God orders our life to include some twists and turns we might not expect. See that even in the unexpected, so, so, so see that even in the unexpected situations, God is at work. Up until this past Wednesday, I'm part of the group of people that's kind of dismissing the coronavirus. Something that is not that serious and it seems too far away to really affect our everyday life. I get a message Wednesday morning that I can no longer do my job as a chaplain to a local nursing home because of the coronavirus. Okay, that's unexpected. And then we know how quickly things have moved since then in our area and in our nation. And we can just bend ourselves into a pretzel trying to figure out the various agendas we think are at play and point fingers and, and either judge people or be dismissive of people or... Or, as God's people, we can see that there's really only one agenda we really need to be concerned with, and that's God. God is at work right now carrying his redemptive story forward, even through a global pandemic. Nothing stops Jesus building his church. He has ordained this for this time because there are plans and purposes he wants to accomplish right now 
that can only be accomplished through these means. Our job is to simply trust that our sovereign God, our Father, is at work. He is at work in ways beyond what we can always understand. And He is with us. And He is sending us to carry out the redemption, uh, the, the, carry out the gospel to see the redemption of more and more people. He, has at, he is at work even in a pandemic. Just yesterday, I finished mowing my yard and was cleaning up and had a, a, a chance to talk to two neighbors within about five minutes um, about the situation. This intense interaction with two neighbors in that short of time span has never happened in the three years that we've lived here. And as far as I know, both neighbors are not part of any local church. One is elderly, and so it was, hey, look, I know you and your brother, your mom, you, you, you're part of the population that's most at risk, and so if we can help run errands, buy groceries, please, please let us know. The other a family with kids out of school now for a month, and probably hourly wage or part-time jobs will be lost, and so it's, hey, if we can help watch kids so you can work, let us know. I don't know if those opportunities will actually come. I'm praying they will, but we would have never had those opportunities to even offer that kind of help without the pandemic. Now, (laughs) not suggesting or over-sensationalizing this, well, God's ordained the pandemic, so Jared can help out his neighbors. No, no. But see that in this unique once-in-a-lifetime situation, see God at work in unexpected ways. Be open more than ever to these kinds of opportunities. See our Father at work. See the Spirit sending us. As I was talking with uh, Jennifer and, and uh, our bigs yesterday, my, my oldest pointed out, Yeah, Dad, well, you know, in the Black Plague, most of the priests died because they were helping everybody. Okay, true, uh, point taken, but uh, my, my encouragement to her and, and them and, and you, uh, church family, there are far worse outcomes in our life than just dying. We die every day as we take up our cross and follow Jesus. We die every day to our agenda as we submit to our King's agenda. We crucify our dreams and plans and false securities and false hopes for health and prosperity every day. And we lay them before King Jesus as we say, my life is your life. Use it as you choose, King Jesus. My time is your time. Use it as you want. My money and resources, they don't belong to me either, King. They are yours. Use them as you choose because my story is really mostly not about me, but about you, King Jesus, and in your story. I'm just caught up in what he's trying to do. And if laying down our lives, if sacrificing our health, if giving our time and energy and resources are what King Jesus wants to carry his redemption story forward in our city, then he gets it. Like we're not as concerned about holding on to everything in this life we can hold on to and protect. We are more concerned with a light grip on this life and the stuff of this life and a tight grip on eternity and Christ and his kingdom and treasures that can't be measured or counted in this life and in this economy, but treasures that stack up in heaven. We have healthcare providers, even in our own church, going to work every day in labs and ERs, potentially exposing themselves to this virus, potentially compromising their own health or the health of others they know and love. Why? Because it's their job. It's their calling. They are faithfully carrying out this calling. And and church is our job and calling not to retreat from opportunities to love and serve, but to enter the crisis with love and compassion, with wisdom, 
led by the Spirit, not being reckless or foolish to unnecessarily expose people to sickness, but also not to hide in fear because of sickness. I, I really can't tell you what these opportunities are going to look like. We're, we're at the beginning of this. My, my admonition is to be ready. Let's increase our communication as missional communities and DNAs to talk and pray about these opportunities. Our sovereign God is at work. He is with us. and He is working out His redemption plan through us. Trust Him, church, and let's join Him in this good work. Father, incredibly grateful for how good and kind and faithful You are, even as the world is changing before our eyes. And it might not seem that you're good. And we, we're grasping to figure out how to make sense of this, this reality. Um, we can stand fast on you because you are immovable. You are unshakable. You are our rock. And we know through all the chaos that we see happening around us, you are still who you are. And that makes us the people that we are. And nothing and no one can change that. You have brought your people through plagues and epidemics and pandemics and uh, torture and persecution and all kinds of famines, all kinds of things you brought your people through to accomplish your purposes. And you will do the same now. And we love that we have that kind of confidence, not because our faith is strong, but because our weak faith is tied to our strong Father in heaven. And you are strong. And so help us and boldness, encourage us, increase our faith. I pray for anyone who may be hearing this, who, who doesn't share that faith in Jesus, that trust in Jesus, because they've never come alive in Jesus. I pray that your spirit and your word would work in them right now, that today would be the day of their salvation as they turn from their sins and trust in Jesus and come alive in Christ. Help us, Father. Help us to be the church. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.